You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology. Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 67. I'm your host, Sarah Head, with my co-hosts today, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. And today we have special guest, Professor Ingrid Rowland from the University of Notre Dame in Rome. Professor Rowland writes and lectures on classical antiquity, the Renaissance, and the age of Baroque. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books, and she's the author of several books, including the one she's here to talk to us about today, the Scareth of Scornello, A Tale of Renaissance Forgery. Ready to think critically. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. My name is Sarah, and I'm here today with my co-host Ken Fader. Ken, how's it going? It's going well. It's going snowy, Sarah. We're under it's about going 20 snowy. inches of snow, and it's too cold and too windy. But it's you know, as we were talking before, I'm waiting for all the people to show up on the internet saying, "What's this nonsense about global warming? Look at how much it's snowing in New England." And I've also, <laughs> I've also got Jeb Card with me tonight. Hello. Jeb, how's it going? Um, Weather-wise, uh, we are living in a wind tunnel, but it's nowhere near as cold and there's no snow. So I Yeah, guess we, we don't nice. have any snow here either. Can't complain. And yeah, today... We had a power outage yesterday morning because of the wind, the wind, though, so that happened. Oh, all right. Well, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and today, all the way from Rome, where she has much better weather than the rest of us, uh, we have Ingrid Roland with us. Hi, Ingrid. How's it going? It's going well. Weather is, we think, not so good, but it looks pretty good compared with what you <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> I, I asked Ingrid beforehand not to tell us what the temperature was in Rome today because it would, it would just hurt my feelings. So we won't, we won't go there. The terrible burdens of a, of a Mediterranean climate. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Now, Ingrid, you are at um, the... At, it's what is it a branch of Notre Dame University? That's it. So they, though, I mean, how? What's the background here? I mean, when? How long? For how long has Notre Dame had a campus in Rome? And how many kids? How many students do you have? See, Notre Dame as a university's had a campus now for two and a half years, and we probably have about a hundred students now, but we have tentacles out in all kinds of places. The School of Architecture's had a program in Rome for almost 50 years. And so what happened is that the entire university decided to follow on the School of Architecture. And we got a new building near the Colosseum and it's suddenly become palatial. Wow, huh? Now, are most of your students, Notre Dame students who are spending a year abroad or is it just international? They're all Notre Dame students, which means de facto they're pretty international. Okay. So it used to be that they were Midwestern students who would come open mouth, but now it's really much more cosmopolitan. (laughs) 
Yeah, we have, we, have a, we have a campus in, in Luxembourg that has a similar, somewhat similar sort of uh, program. Yes, I, got, I tell you here, the, I'm at Central Connecticut State University, which is located in New Britain, Connecticut, and we have a campus in downtown New Britain. So I, I, I can feel you guys. I know what you guys <laughs> are talking about. Now, um, the, the topic t- today is going to be this fascinating example of a 17th century archaeological fraud which I had never heard of until about 2006-2007 when um, the um, uh, Journal of Modern History asked me if I would review this new book by Ingrid Rowland called The Scarath of Scornello. And now I pretended like I knew what that was about, but I had I'd never heard of it, didn't know what it was about. Um, but you know, the, 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 the dirty little secret when you agree to do a book review is you get a free copy of the book. So I thought, <laughs> well, that's cool. I'll get a free copy of the book and you know, I'll read through it and I'll, I'll do my best to review it. And I have to tell you, it, I opened it up and I started reading it and it was, an, it was just a page turner. I couldn't put it down. It was this fascinating story. And as somebody interested in archaeological fraud and, and, and fakery, um, but whose most of whose knowledge focuses on stuff here in, in, in North America. So I knew about the, the newer Coley stones and the Michigan relics and the Los Lunas Decalogue stone. These are some of the things that we have actually talked about on uh, in various shows on the podcast. Um, and the thing that, that struck me was, even though this is Italy and even though this is the 17th century, I'm seeing common threads, things that I'm seeing in all of these frauds uh, perpetrated here in North America in the 19th century. So when we were talking about ideas for shows, I said, we've got to do one on the Scarath of Scornello. And if we're going to do it, let's get the author, let's get the, the, the expert on this topic to participate. So thank you very, very much, Ingrid, for agreeing. And now, I mean, basically, we're going to sit back and we'll, we'll pepper you with questions. But probably most people listening to the podcast have never even heard of this. So give us give us the background. What is a Scarath? Where is Scornello? And what was this? What happened? And the marketing department of the University of Chicago Press kept saying you can't call it the Scarath of Scornello because nobody will know what those words mean. <laughs> right. <laughs> Scarath means a fake Etruscan capsule invented by a forger. It's, he made up the word to describe <laughs> the object. Nice. Well, if you're going to make up a fake, you might as well make up the word to describe the yeah. fake, right? No, just, just tell your marketing department it's something from Harry Potter. They'll love it. Yeah. <laughs> missed out on no, that one. one. Said, oh, I didn't know you were doing fiction now. <laughs> so it isn't. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so a scarif isn't a real thing. It's it's a real fake thing. Yeah, it's a real fake thing. There were some, and they were stolen in about 1985. So that the descendants of the forger kept some, and I met people in the town of Volterra that actually saw them, but the actual objects were stolen after they fixed the roof in their palazzo. And so, so, probably we're on the market as real antiquities. Well, yeah, which is awesome. That, which I just I love I love when that happens. So, but none none of them exists anymore. 
not to anyone's knowledge, and I keep looking on eBay to see. <laughs> yeah, well, that's we uh, we we've done a show. We've done a show on the on the moose stones or the Niven stones that I've been able to dig a few up. Uh, the the Grave Creek tablet in West Virginia that had these bizarre markings that have been translated twenty different ways. That original tablet found in like eighteen thirty eight. That's gone too. Nobody oh, really? I did. I did not actually know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On display, there's a museum where there is a copy um, on display. And in fact, if you look at photographs of them, most of them are photographs of Of the the copies. There's maybe one photograph um, that that Smithsonian scientists took of the original. But the rest, everything else is a, a, are copies. But so Ingrid, who, so, so these are these capsules and what's inside the capsule? Paper documents that were rolled up and we know that they existed because in the 18th century, somebody looked at one of the texts and found the watermark of the local paper factory. <laughs> Nice. You know, if you're going to pull off a fake, you you got to put a little more thought into it than using the paper from the local paper manufacturer. The, oh. the brilliant thing about all of this is the fact that this kid got away with it. And I came across the whole issue because I was going to write a history of Etruscan studies in the Italian Renaissance. And so I was in the Vatican Library looking in the old card catalog under Etruscans, Mm -hmm. and I found this thing that said Etruscan Antiquities from 1637, and so I pulled up the book, and I thought, these are really bogus, and it was obvious that (laughs) Etruscan objects were fake, and so I put the book back, and then I thought, that's really stupid, and what I should do is say, why did somebody think this was worth publishing, so I went back and started looking at the forgery and the whole story of unraveling the mystery was my growing regard for the forger. Isn't that that a very cool feeling when, you know, these things that should, should only exist in fiction, and I don't mean the actual objects, but the, the whole, the whole story, like just, they seem to just kind of pop out of the woodwork sometimes. You know, and this kid turned out to be absolutely brilliant. <laughs> not as an archaeologist as much as a humorist. I think he was oh, wow. really a conceptual artist before his time. Who was this kid you keep referring to? His name was Curzio Ingirami. He came from a noble family of Volterra, which is the most remote of the Etruscan cities of Italy. The Etruscans were a people... Yeah, go ahead. That's what I was going to ask. If you could kind of tell our listeners what exactly that means. Yeah, between, say, the end of the Bronze Age, so we're talking about 1200 BC, up until Roman times, between the river Tiber, which is what Rome's on, and the river Arno between Pisa and Florence, all that territory that's mostly what we now call Tuscany was inhabited by people who spoke a language totally different from any of the languages in Italy and any of the languages around them. Is It is Indo-European, though. No, it's not. That's the really interesting thing. So that it's possibly a Finno-Ugric language. It's possibly related to some of the languages in Asia Minor, but it's definitely not Indo-European. Interesting. So you get really amazing words. 
And, and I know th I know there are a lot of there I know there are a lot of like funerary monuments with inscriptions and there's a there's a whole element that we can read some of it structurally but we can't what what is our best like what is the sort of the rough evidence for uh, Etruscan language like what what exists Yeah basically what exists are tomb inscriptions there's some dedications on statues uh -huh. there's a boundary marker actually there're about three or four boundary markers there's a property settlement, and then there's one book, and they wrote on bolts of linen cloth. Oh, wow. The book ended up wrapping a mummy on an island off Egypt. Oh, and wow. The mummy was bought by a Croatian tourist in the 19th century, and then he wanted to see what the mummy looked like, and they realized it was... I've heard of this. I've heard of yeah, that. So the Zagreb mummy wrap is, our best hope is a book, and what it looks like is a sacrificial calendar for the spring months. Yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, and it's an alphabetic script, right? Right. It's an alphabetic script, so it's taken from the Phoenicians. I actually used Etruscan when I was learning Hebrew because you could crib the Hebrew letters off the Etruscan letters. <laughs> and it's in the same order as Hebrew and Phoenician and basically Greek and the Roman alphabet. Okay. So Ingarami used that script to fabricate these scrolls? Well, the interesting thing is that he didn't really quite use it. Oh. But he has, looks more like runes, and I suspect that his father <laughs> may have had a copy of Olive Orm's book on runes. Yeah. And so it's not even, he wrote it left to right in bogus Etruscan. <laughs> so, no. okay, no, wait, no, wait, no, wait. Go ahead, Sarah. So there's nothing actually about these artifacts that is authentic in any way, shape, or form? Uh, the interesting thing that I finally realized after the, I worked on this is that he buried them on a place that probably is a really Etruscan site. Huh. <laughs> one of the things he found is a genuine Iron Age Etruscan safety pin. So that... <laughs> Some of his assemblage was genuine, and the weird thing is that I hadn't. Scornello is in a remote area outside Volterra, which is already remote. And when I finally got to Scornello, I just took a look at this hill and realized, of course, it's an Etruscan site because it's absolutely classic, and nobody's ever excavated there because <laughs> it's been discredited by Curtius right. discoveries. But in fact, it's just bonehead obvious that there must be something Etruscan there. And so Curzio was 17 when he started faking these things. And they came on, let's see, he's born 1611, and they're coming out in the 1630s. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so mid-17th mid, mid, mid century then. It's mid-17th century. It's actually, he finds them in 1634, and then he starts, that's right, no, see, he's born later than 1611, that's one of his relatives, but what happens, it comes out right after Galileo's been condemned by the Inquisition down in Rome, and the argument about the authenticity of these forgeries is taken up by the same people who are defending Galileo, and he actually has... The person who's the protagonist of his forged texts talking about astronomy, proving uh. 
that everybody who lives in Tuscany, like Galileo, was already preternaturally gifted with astronomical insight. Oh, wow. So it was, so, it was, it was taking the cutting-edge sort of scientific issues of its day and mangling them. Yes, and so I thought he was doing this seriously until I got to the archive in Volterra, and there were two comedies that he'd written. I thought, these are going to be really awful. And as usual, I underestimated them, and I started reading these things. And they're screamingly funny, even hundreds of years later. Oh, wow. And then I started looking back at this whole enterprise of his, and I think it's basically a colossal parody of Etruscan forgeries because there was already a long history in Italy of forged Etruscan texts. Now, this, this is, is happening. Thing... Oh, I'm sorry. This is in the 17th century, but the first big forgery to emerge is in 1498. Oh, wow. And yeah. those are printed and they're terribly influential. And what he does is a sustained parody of this book of 1498 that was a great sensation when it came out and Our... revealed all sorts of amazing things about the Etruscans and about Rome. Or do any of the, so for, for our listeners, if I understand correctly, uh, you've got the, the Etruscans as kind of like a people, as a political force, and then the Romans very much, who had been ruled by them, by their, by their own telling, very much make a big part of their identity uh, that they had broken free. And rather than being ruled by kings, they were going to be a republic until the first century uh, BC. So that's yeah. kind of the, the, the sort of the role of the, the Etruscans in the Italian imagination. It was for the Romans and anybody okay. who identified for the Romans. And so there, this whole thing about picking out the kings in 509 and then setting up the Republic. But the Tuscans, on the other hand, right. in the Renaissance, start looking back at this. And there's an exchange of letters between Poggio Bracciolini, who's one of the city councilmen in Florence, writing to Lorenzo Valla in the Vatican. And this is the early 1400s. So what that reminds me of is, is something I've talked about on the show a little, uh, what, I, what I call this notion of uh, kind of collapsed proto-history, how the things that are on the very edge of, of history, often the, the first historically documented people, but usually not documented by themselves, documented by people, other people, end up being really important for creating identity. So like Celts or Incas or Aztecs or there's, there's uh there's a, there's a whole bunch of different ones where they end up becoming, because they have one foot in kind of like mythic prehistory and one foot in historical. And it sounds like that's very much what the Etruscans are being used for here. That one, of course, they're in Tuscany, so I, it makes perfect sense the Tuscans would do that. But secondly, they're in essence at the edge of history. Is that about right? Yeah, and so they don't talk back in a way that yeah. they can meet with you, whereas the Romans could you've got enough Roman texts that they can argue back. And so because we have all these Etruscan inscriptions, but all they tell you about are family relationships, then there's this vast field of imagination. You can shape them to whatever you want. Yeah, and they won't protest. And especially because it looks very much as if starting in the first century BC, after Julius Caesar when there's the big fight between the future Augustus and Mark Antony about who's uh -huh. going to take over, Antony has the Etruscans on his side. Oh. And so there's a real suppression of them under Augustus. 
Yeah, it, even, doesn't, it doesn't go well for them, I take it. No, and you stop seeing Etruscan inscriptions right after Augustus gets in. There's some fascinating poems by Propertius, who's from Assisi and saw all of these Etruscan wars. And he's asked by the cultural czar of Augustus, Mycenaeus, who is himself an Etruscan, why don't you write for us? And Propertius says, oh, no, my girlfriend's eyes are my only inspiration. And then he <laughs> says, but if I were going to write, I wouldn't write about Troy. I'd write about how you up overturned the altars of the Etruscans. And he just starts talking blood and guts and all the terrible things that Augustus has done. And that's the end of Propertius writing for Augustus for another one and a half books. And then finally, the fourth book of poetry, he's decided to go over to the dominant side. But there's a resistance aspect to the Etruscans, especially for the emerging Tuscan republics in the Middle Ages and then going into the Renaissance, where they see Rome as the oppressor. Right. I, so, I, I was half thinking you were going to say the book was finished by somebody in a very different handwriting. It says, and now Rome is good, signed right. Etruscan poet. <laughs> yeah, signed Etruscan poet. So, so, so in the 17th century, there's this, this kind of simmering resentment in Tuscany about what happened in the past, about Rome, and this yearning for their mythic past. And there's the mythic past, plus you have... The Roman Inquisition silencing Galileo, who's under house arrest in mm -hmm. Florence. And so the Etruscans become an excuse by which the Grand Duchy of Tuscany can beat back at Rome and send up the Pope. Well, let's, let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, um, maybe we can look a little bit more into what these scarifs Said exactly. Exactly. What's what are the what are the themes? I mean, we've right. got the backdrop. Now let's look at the the real deal, so to speak. Let's face it, the quality of archaeological field photography could really use some improvement. We aim to change this with the Codify Magic Photo Board. This lightweight but incredibly durable board is designed to help you take color-perfect photos of artifacts, features, and sites using almost any camera, even your smartphone. You need to see it to believe it. Engineered from exceptional quality, color-safe, high-pressure laminate, Codify Magic Photo Board is ready for tough field conditions. It's guaranteed to level up your photography. Start taking publication-worthy photos right in the field with the Codify Magic Photo Board. Available now for pre-order, visit codify.com slash APN. That's codifi.com forward slash APN today and get your promo code exclusively for listeners of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey everyone, and we are back and we are still talking with Ingrid Rowland. And so tell us what are we know the scarifs are a a made-up word and b some kind of capsule with writing inside of them but what were these things that he was writing about and putting inside these scarifs it's it turns out that they're all supposed to be written by a young man named prospero of Fiesole, who's a student priest at the priest school of volterra and it's 63 bc it's right after Cicero has unmasked an assassination attempt by his rival as consul, Lucius Sergius Catalina. And Catalina has come up and tried to get 
Etruscan allies so that he can attack Rome. And instead, what's happened is Cicero's unleashed the Roman army, and the Roman army's coming to attack the citadel of Volterra. And at this point, student Prospero writes that he's consigning to these permanent capsules all the treasures of his heritage and his dear household gods and some of his family treasures, and he's been pressed into service to defend the citadel of Scornello against the encroaching Roman troops. So the and barbarians are at the gates. The barbarians are at the gates, and the barbarians are the Roman army under Cicero. Right, right. <laughs> Well, that's actually that's actually pretty that's actually pretty damn dramatic. Um, I have I have one question before we get further on that. How common would a name like Prospero have been? Since me being Anglo-centric or Anglo-speaking would immediately go to the Tempest, right? I think uh, too. <laughs> yeah. So it, would that have been an, an an unusual name? Either in I assume I'm not even worried about in the Etruscan times because I mean, we're, but even in the 16th century or the 17th century, is that an unusual name? It's unusual, and I wouldn't totally rule out the Shakespeare connection. Really? Oh, wow. Okay, that's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. This is about the same time. Milton is studying in Florence, and one of Milton's friends in Florence gets involved in this whole controversy. Oh, really? Huh. Interesting. And so this, Curzio is living in a remote villa outside Volterra, which is remote from Florence. And so I think he's spending a lot of time as a young man with his father's library, which is unfortunately dispersed now, but I wouldn't put it past him to read all kinds of things. And so (laughs) what Prospero's setting out is the whole history of Etruria from the Etruscan point of view. And because Etruscan, the texts, as he says, are written both in Etruscan and in Latin because otherwise they won't be readable. <laughs> right, right. This is this is the Rosetta Stone only 150 years before the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, yeah if you're going to thank ancient knowledge, you have to go one of two ways. Either you have to do that where you have some mystical, and this actually brings up something I'm going to ask in a minute, um, some mystical language, etc., but you've got it translated, or you go like the uh, the James Churchward or the uh, um, Helena Blavatsky route. Like, I'm the only one who can read these glyphs. Um, so you, you have to listen or, to me. Or, or you need the magic glasses. Right, right, exactly. That's a, that's a variant on that. I did want to ask, you said this is in the 17th, mid-17th century, and um, I've done a little bit of reading on how hieroglyphs were seen at this time, where you've got... Uh, I think it's Heropolos, Hieroglyphica, which reappears. And this is kind of like the height and near the end of the century with, with Kircher, uh, Athen- I, and I always, I don't mispronounce his name, Athenaeus Kircher, looking at, at ancient hieroglyphs, like Egyptian hieroglyphs, as being almost quasi, or being quasi-mystical. Um, but this is an Etruscan alphabetic, so this is seen as just writing. It doesn't really have that same kind of, of, of sort of patina of, of the mystical about it. It does, to a certain extent, in Tuscany, because it's all religious. And in fact, Uh what happens is that Curzio's father is very ambitious for him. And so he starts presenting these things to learned societies in Tuscany. And then it's 
the texts are published in a book, and the book is sent right down to Athanasius Kierkegaard. And they say, well, you already know 23 languages. How is this Etruscan? Right. And he won't say anything because he's waiting for the Grand Duke of Tuscany to give him an Arabic font so that he can print with really high quality Arabic instead of the stuff he's been using from the College of the Propaganda Fide. So he holds off until 1650 and says nothing about it. And meanwhile, there are fights that erupt in all these learned societies, but everybody agrees that Curzio Ingirami showing off his scarab is the best show in town. <laughs> and everybody personally likes him a great deal and finds him amazingly erudite and witty. And <laughs> so you're saying it, he was a he was a TED talk, is what you're saying? Yeah, he's basically a, a TED walking <laughs> TED talk. There's one portrait of him, he's quite chubby in a way that's run through the family because the family still exists. I've become friends with his descendants. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And the sense of humor also seems to be part of the family because there's a famous forebear who worked at the time of Raphael and Julius II who's also hilarious and also on the roly-poly side. And no. so you have this amusing guy doing something completely different now is this the gentleman that is the, the possible forger and it turns out that fairly quickly people start deciding that he's the forger gotcha okay do we know if he's the forger that the handwriting of the scarf <laughs> his handwriting are identical Ah, all right. Well, you know, again, if you're going to try to pull off an authentic looking archaeological hoax, we've seen that before on this podcast. It doesn't have to be authentic for people to believe it. You you want to change your handwriting, for God's sake. Well, I I guess that asks I guess that asks another question, though. I mean, are we dealing in the 17th century in this particular cultural context with a different concept of authenticity? Or is it pretty much? No, this is bullshit. Yeah, it's really an interesting moment because this is where a lot of criteria for authenticity get discussed. And it's precisely this incident that allows antiquarians in Italy in the early 17th century to figure out what their criteria are. So one of the things that everybody says is they didn't have paper back then. They wrote on linen. They didn't have the Zagreb mummy wrap as a proof, and so what they're doing is arguing back and forth on the basis of ancient literary testimony, whether cloth books were rag paper or were they real cloth, and now we know that it was real cloth, and as of the 18th century, we know that he was using paper from the local paper factory. (laughs) So the the main kind of tests... Were, were largely what did people say about the ancient Etruscans in written texts? Like, that was what you would test it against. Yeah, you test it against that, and so this is the very beginning when you start systematically testing it against archaeological artifacts, which would be common a century later, but this right. is the beginning. And then the whole argument about paper, about whether the Etruscans write right to left or left to right. And so 
it's a crucial moment really in establishing the criteria for authenticity. And then meanwhile, I'd come across his plays and then there's part of his own diary in which he writes and he says, my whole problem is I really wanted to be a historian, but I'm not well-educated enough. And dad wants me to go to law school, but I really don't want to go to law school. And then I found the scarf and I didn't have to go to law school. Nice. <laughs> so we have motive means opportunity. <laughs> they have to be just good enough to get him from having to go to Florence <laughs> to go to law school. <laughs> so was he, was he producing these things? I mean, it's, he did them for a long while, right? Yeah, he certainly produced five or six of them that are illustrated in the book. And then he, as people criticize him, he keeps having to forge Scarif that prove that the criticisms aren't true. And, and how so, many of these did he find altogether? So apparently there were never more than a handful that anybody saw physically. And then he refers to about 50 of them, but they may be made up. And then he branches out and he starts forging documents in the local archives from the Middle Ages. Oh. And he's then picked up by the Bollandists who are writing an international compendium of saints' lives. And he becomes the expert on local Volterran saints, which include the second Pope, Linus. And so he starts forging documents to put in the archives for the saints' lives. <laughs> Oh my God. Now you said that these were, and and, and I have a, I have two. One, in, I, I read Ken's review, and they referred to as 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 time capsules, and I think apparently they were bitumen and wax and other materials. Like the idea was that they had been purposely put away, as as you know, for the future. Like you know, as you said, uh, the city is about to fall. You know, the Urukai are on the gates. I must write down this last thing. And then, arg at the end, like yeah. in the Black Hills of Arg, um, when, when it overtakes. So, one, there was, was there was the concept that somebody would do that. And secondly, do you think that it was important that they were dug up that it, rather than being found in an archive or just appearing, that there was the idea of them being excavated? Yeah, that was crucial. And... At Scornello, you can see there are these precipitous slopes. So they keep talking about how these capsules were pulled from beneath bunches of roots. And in fact, in the road park around the villa, which is the same villa that he was in, you can see where the slopes are such that you can stick something under a root and still have it really close to the surface. Eventually, Shades of Kensington. Yeah. yeah right. it, oh, yeah. And the first testimony we have is one of his servants because he and his sister were going on a fishing expedition. And the servant says they were bent over a dirty bundle laughing. And so I think Lucrezia Ingirami must have been intimately involved in this. And the scar the early ones were wrapped in hair as well as pitch and bitumen and everything else. And I suspect Lucrezia was the source of the hair. Oh my. <laughs> but, no, but, but nobody else you know he didn't plant these and then other people found any of them. He found all of them. He found the first ones and then the police were sent down 
and remarkably, each policeman got his own capsule. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, the policemen were completely converted nice. because course, each course. one of them had the joy of pulling a scar from the earth with his own hands. Wow, this guy, like, he knew how to do this, didn't he? Yeah, he was really remarkably shrewd. Yeah, that's, I mean, the best way to get somebody on your side is to give them the exact thing they want. And that and sense of discovery is a great way. Like we, like we had when we had April B. Saw on the whole concept of if you take part, it, you're part of it. Exactly. Right. And smart enough that he, he actually put these things at a genuine Etruscan site. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. really had this thought out, except for the whole watermark thing and <laughs> and the handwriting thing. and the handwriting thing. Yeah, whatever. But now, and also, Ingrid, isn't there also this issue of that that there is an order to which they were found that reflects the order of the story that Prospero actually tells? Oh, that's funny. Yes, and so that way <laughs> he could keep elaborating on the story and then just. <laughs> Make another text that will back him up. It's just—it's incredible. Well, didn't anybody wonder a little bit skeptically about how it was, how it happened that they were found in the correct order? That yeah, everybody gets really skeptical, but everybody in Tuscany, or there's one professor at the University of Pisa who's not a Tuscan. He's from the Swiss canton of Ticino. And he says, these are totally bogus. <laughs> they didn't write on paper. They wrote on linen. And the Grand Duke says, do you like your job? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. So, so, so there's, a, there's an element of, I mean, this is like the Bosnian pyramid. This is like so many of the things we've talked about where right, at the end, right. at the end of the day, nationalism. some people just don't really care. Yeah. And in this case, it's all about Galileo. So the... Yeah. What I liked about the problem once I got into it is the fact that there's such a hagiography of Galileo. So he's right. He's the first scientist. Everybody else is crazy. And so all of his backers in this case are wrong. And the benighted Inquisition, which was benighted, but his most vicious Jesuit opponent is one of the people who gets involved in this whole controversy. <laughs> and so it shows that the intrigue's happening on both sides and the degree to which intellectual <laughs> debates in that period were politically driven. So are you saying that he are you saying that he managed to win over or at least kind of trap his most ardent critic? into thinking that these things were also real? I think they know it, that they aren't real, but... But they can't come out and say they're not? Yeah, and they'd like to bludgeon the condemners of Galileo with the whole controversy, so it allows you to argue with Rome about Galileo without ever bringing up Galileo, because that gets you in real trouble. So if you argue about these then you could vent your aggressions <laughs> and not be excommunicated. Were, was, there a, was there any opportunity for skeptical scholars, not necessarily deniers, but skeptics, to actually personally examine 
any of these scrolls? Yeah, there was a famous debate in Volterra between Leone Alacci, who is Vatican librarian, and he wrote the definitive debunking of the scarf. It's published in 1540. And so he comes up and does a debate in Volterra, but they have such a good time in each other's company. I think Curzio knows they're fake, and Alacci knows they're fake. <laughs> so then the whole idea is that you have this debate, and then everybody probably enjoyed the banquet afterwards exceedingly. <laughs> That's just very interesting. So, but it's like, it's as Jeb said, the authenticity is a, is a secondary and maybe even irrelevant issue. Yeah. Isn't, this is interesting, and it tells us a story we want to hear, and so that's all we need to know. Well, and I think that it's interesting that it they were using this as a way to talk about Galileo and the politics of the day without actually having to mention any of those words. It It really became like, for lack of a better term, it became a dog whistle of the time, and I think that's fascinating that everybody's just like, yeah, this is how we're going to talk about this. It's like the agreed-upon vocabulary to discuss other issues and I, I find that fascinating yeah, I think that's what fascinates me about that period that you have to be so careful about expressing ideas and this is one way that you can get around it is just to project everything into some almost fanciful controversy <laughs> Now, if you're back in Rome at this time, is there a sense that the consensus is, oh, those silly Etruscans, what won't they believe? In so, that case, know, they tend to really zone, or they zoom in on Curzio himself. And so it tends to be, at first, personal invective, and then finally, there's a round of anonymous pamphlets <laughs> so that somebody from the Gentlemen's Academy that hosted the great debate with the Vatican librarian and Curzio and a member of that academy writes in and says, really, I don't see why everybody was being so mean to Curzio. <laughs> Probably this was Curzio. It turns out that the club books for the years in which he's a member have disappeared. Aww. I'm sure someplace. I haven't found them yet. And then down in Rome, Galileo's Jesuit opponent and this Vatican librarian write what's supposed to be a dialogue by a guy named Benno Durkendurk, who's sort of a dumb Austrian. And he says, oh, I heard about this, but I don't know too much, but it seems to me this is really bogus. <laughs> Uh, Did they seriously and, name him Dirk or Dirk? Yeah, it's Benno Dirk and Dirk, and it turns out this is going back to the Ingirami family trees. The Ingirami are actually German extraction. They came with Emperor Otto I in the ninth century. Oh, wow. And their ancestors named Benno. So this is a takeoff. And what Curzio does when he publishes his Scarth texts is show his whole family tree to give a pedigree to his erudition. And so 
what these guys in the Vatican are doing or making fun of it. And they've got all the resources of the Vatican Library. Plus, they have Father Kierkegaard with his linguistic gift. And so it's obvious to everybody in Rome that these texts are completely absurd and what they're missing at first. And I think they probably cotton on to when there's the debate up in Volterra is that he's having fun with it. It is a sustained parody. Well, let's take a break real quick. And when we come back, we will uh, kind of wrap up this story because it's really, it is a very fascinating story. Eight-Bit Test Pit is here to put Archeo Gaming on the map. Hosted by key players of the Archeo Gaming world, 8-Bit Test Pit sets to explain the weird and wonderful connections between the study of our past and the virtual worlds we like to explore. 8-Bit Test Pit breaks the field of Archeo Gaming down into three accessible formats. The main campaign is the monthly show featuring a panel discussion led by Andrew Reinhardt, Megan Dennis, and Tara Copplestone on a number of issues and topics, all of which revolve around the intersection of archaeology and gaming. Everything from coding practices to ethics in and about the game reality. Dug Up content is bite-sized 15-minute episodes released every six weeks, filled to the brim with information covering key terms and concepts in and about the field of archaeogaming. These will inform and educate in the time it takes to load your saved game. Archeo Deathmatch. Two Archeo Gamers enter, one Archeo Gamer leaves. When a field is new, disagreements are going to happen. Here in the virtual arena, two archaeologists debate a topic related to Archeo Gaming, hosted every five weeks or as needed. Archeo Gaming covers not only the study of archaeology and video games, but also the study of games as material culture. Some of our hosts you already may know. Andrew Reinhardt, who was featured in the documentary Atari Game Over, Tara Copplestone, who studies how games are made through an archaeological lens, and Megan Dennis, a PhD candidate at the University of York who is studying ethics in video games. Plus, many more interested and insightful players in the Archeogaming world are ready to load. The show is hosted and produced by Sarah Head of Archaeofantasies fame and Tristan Boyle, content creator of the Archaeology Podcast Network. And we are back and we are still talking with Ingrid Rowland. And so when we finished... Last right before last break, you were telling us how uh, the Vatican and such were writing pamphlets that were written by a made-up person named Durka Dirk, and that the gentleman who was forging the scarifs he also was publishing his own anonymous pamphlets about these scarifs. So basically, they're having this argument anonymously through these leaflets. Is that is that what's happening? And so they have it first in person, and, and they have it <laughs> in other characters based on themselves. <laughs> so this fake artifact is is a fun argument that that the societies at the time are enjoying, but then they start creating fake people to continue this argument about a fake artifact. Is that what's happening? That's what's happening. That's and awesome. <laughs> this Jesuit who's writing from Rome ultimately wrote under eight pseudonyms, <laughs> one of which was Lucius Cornelius the European, and he writes 
a satire of his own Jesuit order, which means that he gets in big trouble in 1648. Oh, wow. Oh. When you have so many pseudonyms, how do you keep them straight? Right. No, wait a minute. Who am I supposed to be now? So it's, this, it's the 17th century. Can does does Curzio in any way that does he make these things available? Can you go to a museum in 1640 and look as as a, a lay person actually look at the Scarif, or are these locked away? They're probably in his palazzo, but one of his comedies has an old geezer who's coming to Voltaire. I'm coming up with Scotty because he made up this word. And then there's an Italian version of the word that's used in his native town so that even today, everybody knows about the Scariti. <laughs> and the plays are in Italian, so this man's, oh, I'm going to go see the Scariti. So I guess you could just knock on the door and say, I'd like to see the Scariti. And if I'd been onto this in 1975, I probably could have seen the Scariti. <laughs> Oh, right, before they disappear. Oh, dear. Yeah, that's right. So now, so Curzio, how, lo how long does he live? So he's, he's doing this all. He begins this when he's a teenager. Yeah, he began it in his teens. He only lived to be 44 years old. But in that time, he'd managed to marry the woman he loved, who was a widow in Volterra. <laughs> and so he managed to live the life that he wanted rather than life that his dad wanted uh, for him. He became the eccentric local antiquarian. And there was never any confession, you know, subtle or overt, that, hey, you know what, guys, I made all this up. No. Are there any cases like this remotely in time that might give us a suggestion of what would happen if there had been? I mean, anything we could even think of as an analog to this for a comparison? If he had confessed to it? Or, or had been caught or, yeah. Yeah, he basically was caught. It's just that nobody wanted to prosecute him. <laughs> so the, I think everybody knew they were fake. Yeah. And there's a similar case in this case of 1498, where the forger ends up becoming the chief theologian in the Vatican. Is the number three, number three person in the Dominican order worldwide. <laughs> I'm not even sure what exactly I want to say to that. I was going to say, <laughs> so the lesson here is, is in that time, if you forged things, you got to live a good life. If you forged <laughs> things that people liked. That's they, true. They That's true. Them. Yeah, because yeah, no, there was I mean, the guy that got the, got in trouble for his, so. Yeah, you, you have facts. Uh, they are possibly alternative, and uh, nothing bad goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Jeb. <laughs> The more things change, the more, the more they stay the same. Yeah, no, it's. I was going to make an analogy to the Bosnian pyramids in that. Every, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think many people really believe those are real, but uh, there's a lot of invested interest in at least selling the story right. that they are real. Well, I, we've we have a chapter in our in our volume right. Lost City Found Pyramid about that, and. Um, there are clear as people in Bosnia believe they're real. A lot of people, it sounds like this. It's a lot of people. It sounds like um, that they know that they're they're okay with it for other reasons, though not the right. playfulness that yeah. we're hearing here. But I'll say this: I mean, once you get into like the communities that we talk about, they're really popular. Like you know, there there are podcasts to listen to where they'll just constantly refer to them as one key linchpin in 
a larger lost civilization sure. uh, narrative. Well, or, and there's or... there's the next logical step from the conversation. How are the Scarifs received today? Like in modern era, are they still seen as being these basically playful uh, forgeries, or is there a a following that believes that these are authentic and that they unravel a deeper secret. Yeah, I think the last person to believe in them was Cotton Mather. Really? Oh, that's that's a that's a good place to start. Yes. How? Uh, for for our our listeners, who who exactly is Cotton Mather? <laughs> Cotton Mather is one of the most famous Puritan ministers mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. U.S. history, and he wrote a great commentary on the Bible that he started in the late 1600s and carried on through the rest of his life into the 1700s. But he cites Curzio Ingirami in saying that Noah is an ancestor of the Etruscans. Because <laughs> why not? Why not? Yes. Uh, and this is also the same Cotton Mather that, if I remember my murdering people who are accused of witchcraft in New England right, was involved in murdering people that were accused of witchcraft in Salem and other places. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so he's writing about spectral evidence in the Salem witch trials being admissible when his father increase is completely against it. That seems entirely appropriate that he would also just take, because why not? (laughs) And Ingrid, aren't there in the, in what, what Prospero is writing, aren't there, kind of inklings of Christianity long before the birth of Christ? Are there there are things oh, yeah. that, that Catholics reading that would say, wow, we recognize that? Oh, and that was because the Gregorian calendar had just come in in 1583. So we're not that far into the Gregorian calendar and people are obsessed with chronology. So that when Prospero says, I've heard about the great king from whom the years will be numbered. That just got all the chronologists. Well, yeah, of course. Wow. And the fact he dated everything. So we know this is all happening in 63 BC. It's very. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, which is like psychic, right? Well, that's the, this, this is a very common pattern. You see this in a lot of the, the the Atlantean writers and the Lost Continent writers that follow um, Donnelly, where mm-hmm. they're talking about they they on the one hand, so you know, the Blavatsky and our Theosophists, they really kind of sort of want to be in places vaguely Hindu, vaguely this, um, but a lot of the people that follow in there or work with them seem to be injecting a whole lot of kind of lay Christianity right. or vague versions of it, and so it's always amazing how. Uh, 10,000 BC, it's going to be certain that the one piece of the lost continent of Mu's evidence is going to get to Moses because, <laughs> you know, and, and, and this, it's, this sounds very familiar. Well, and it's interesting that that narrative survives. It's not interesting. It's, I, I personally think it's kind of sad how this narrative survives today. Cause you know, I'm reading this book and that is honestly the underlying drive of this book is proving that north america ancient prehistoric pre-contact north america was a christian continent before europeans ever got over here like that is the driving narrative of this book and so it's still a very modern um goal to basically christianize the past yeah and because noah was the first etruscan 
the Etruscan past is well and truly Christianized. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, Ingrid, when was the... I, I would think that the watermark on paper would be the smoking gun, right? I love this watermark when, thing. When, when was that revealed? Was that That's, after Curzio died or before? Yeah, it's about 50 years after he dies. Oh, okay, all right, all right. And, well, that's good, because that makes cool. that, yeah, that makes that a little harder to ignore if it was found while he was alive. But yeah, I, after he's dead, I guess that kind of was the nail in the coffin of this whole uh, fraud. Well, if I'm right, they, they already knew that this was a fake. Well, yeah. So this was just, of course. Yeah, and by that time, it's ridiculed. And so in a way, what I was trying to do is restore to him some dignity as a creative artist. <laughs> well, it, it is an interesting kind of performance art, right? You know, producing these capsules, putting them in the ground, discovering them, revealing them, and then reveling in all the attention that you get. And, 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 present, and presenting art. them. And presenting yeah. them. I think yeah, that's a major, a major part major of it that you're, you're pointing out. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, just think yeah. of the entertainment industry he built around these, too, because not only is he showing these off, but then he and a couple of his rivals are arguing with each other back and forth with fictitious names. I mean, it's like yeah, television. It's, it's, well, as I say, it's halfway between the History Channel, and I can imagine this guy with, like, uh, you know, Scarif's meme. And right. uh, on the other half, it's it's almost like people role-playing. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. It kind of is where it's like uh, they've, they've come up with these characters and they know it's not real, but they kind of sort of get into it and it's and it's showy for in fact, it's like those people that do the role playing on YouTube for people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you're saying. I'm, I'm it would be interesting to me and I don't I'll have to pick up your book and read it because I, I would like to see if the arguments between the rivals going back and forth, if that didn't itself help build the backstory and the history and just the world that these Scariths would have had to have existed in just to kind of see if they were writing their own narrative while they were yeah. arguing back and forth. Well, the controversy and argument is part of the publicity machine today and apparently in the past to get things out in front of the public and get them, get people interested. It's more oh, yeah. interesting if people are yelling at one another about something than if, than if not. So, now you say that the, so you you still have descendants today. How how do they fit into the conversation? Do they like talking about this? Are they embarrassed by what their ancestor did? Is do they find it whimsical? How do they view the, the descendants of Curzio Ingarami? How do they view this whole story? Yeah, they wish I'd work on Admiral Jacopo, who's more respectable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that I was actually inducted into the same academy that Curzio was in, but I'm there for, as they said, having written a historical ironic novel. <laughs> awesome. That's funny. I mean, were, were descendants more than happy to talk? Did you did you speak to, to his descendants when you were writing the book? Were they happy to talk to you? Did they yep. close the door in your face and say, go away, we don't like talking about this? No, they were amazingly hospitable. Oh, so good time with them and as you say i think you pointed out to me that there is a family website that in italian that that talks about this issue and in fact mentions your book yeah there's a lot about that and then jacopo who's my age also has something about 
the virtues of the Tuscan cigar. And so he's all over the place. He's a professor of computer science at the Bocconi University in Milan. So he's first rate in his field. That's kind of poetic. I mean, all all the guy wanted was to be an academic. And now down the line, his children have become well-respected academics. It's true. I think that's kind of sweet. This is a a really fun and interesting artifact that for us, usually we're kind of trying to unravel motives and it's not nearly as lighthearted of a fraud. It's usually got some kind of money motive or just in general, you know, trying to prove things that aren't necessarily true. This sounds like it was really, it almost sounds like he made these on purpose just so that maybe people could talk about politics and the whole Galileo thing. Like, oh no, he's artfully defending Galileo from anti-science. How exactly. <laughs> I, I feel like that this was actually done for the right reason, if you can say that about a fraud. Yeah, and it has a happy ending. <laughs> well, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. And one of the happy endings is the the book that Ingrid wrote, Scarif of Scornello. And again, I highly recommend, you know, folks... Go get yourself a copy of the book. It is a really interesting story, and it's funny and insightful, and I enjoy it very much. And I recommend go go get yourself a copy. So, Ingrid, do you have any final thoughts on your your story that you've been telling us? This fascinating story. Anything we didn't yes. highlight through our questions that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think it's really just the funniness of it that you can't get from if you don't read the texts, because they're done in this mock solemnity so that he's really sending up every kind of serious academic publication. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, Ken, final thoughts? Well, I, mean, I just, again, it's a great book. Get yourself a copy of the book. And I think it's it's this really interesting, the thing that I find most interesting are these these commonalities that, that yeah, there are differences, but when you look at the, you know, when we had, uh, Brad Lepper and Jeff Gill talking about the newer Colby Stones and why people embrace that and the, yeah. the Los Salinas Decalogue and the Kensington Runestone, the kind of the ethnic connections, the historical connections, the the yearning for this mythic past. Um, I've actually had people who've told me as a you know, they say, listen, you're an archaeologist, you really can't ever know anything in archaeology. So the job of the archaeologist should be to provide um, a mythic past that makes people today feel better about themselves. And that's a horrible thing for an archaeologist to hear. Okay. But understand, there is this thread. People, you know, what we should be doing is making people feel better. And Corzio apparently made Tuscans feel better and, <laughs> well, uh, in, a, in a humorous way. And, and I think we've talked about this, that that honestly, as as brutally offensive and ignorant as that is, and I'm not saying that to be funny, it is actually brutally offensive and ignorant, it also does capture why people actually do archaeology, I think. I mean, it's, it's about, you know, what do these things do? Well, they explain why the present makes sense in light of the past. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're looking at the past not to make point, what are you doing if it's not to make sense of the present? Right. I mean, what's, right. what's the point of what you're doing other than, like, obsessive collection of bottle caps? <laughs> saving saving exactly. for the inevitable fallout? Well, I, I, I do know what you're talking about. <laughs> But uh, but I wasn't quite going there. <laughs> well, Ingrid, thank you very, very much for agreeing to do this. This was a wonderful podcast. Really enjoyed it. 
Me too. <laughs> yes, Ingrid, yes. what a fascinating story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Yes, thank you. Raise your trials as one will call. No way down to a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Fantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Fantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.